Hello, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Bentley Kaplan, coming to you from my bedroom, which is slowly looking more and more like a recording studio that just happens to have space for my pajamas. It's another week in the world of ESG, and we're going to zoom out a little and focus on some longer-running news items. First up, I've got Andrew Young back on the show. We heard from him last week about Microsoft and TikTok, but this week I'm putting him on the spot to talk about a seemingly unsolvable challenge facing otherwise unstoppable companies like Google and Facebook. Then it's time to go big in Japan with Minako Takaba to hear about how the COVID pandemic may just be nudging the Japanese workplace towards greater gender diversity. And then we'll sail off into the sunset, or at least see the sunset from our quarantine cabins with SK Kim as she paints an ESG filter over the challenges facing the cruise line industry. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. So I've been stuck in a month-long lockdown in sleepy suburban Cape Town, squaring off against regular power cuts, two toddlers and one self-important cat, and somehow news about the twists and turns of the upcoming US election still manages to find me. Long gone are the days of closing the Sunday paper to get some peace and quiet. And some of the world's biggest companies, Google, Facebook and Twitter, have made it their business to make sure that's the case. Whether it's through social media advertising or news feeds, these internet giants are mainlining content to billions of consumers. But the catch is, for the most part, these interactive and media services companies, as they're called, are not producing this content. They're just offering a platform for others to share their own content. And whether that's advertisers or third-party content producers like news channels or people producing so-called native content, which is like your grandpa sharing pictures of rocking chairs. Where it gets tricky is when sneaky little paws start messing with content, or as Andrew Young calls it, the challenge of content integrity. We made a definition. It's the, the corruption of news and information delivery to consumers. And what we mean by corruption is corruption in content production. So that would be, for example, uh, news that's not fact-checked or disinformation. So there's an issue in the actual production of content. Um, there can be issues in access to content. So in, in the U.S., for example, there's the uh, net neutrality discussion, and that's preferring one kind of content over another. And then for social media and search engine, the, the, issue is, the issues are how that content is prioritized and, uh, and actually delivered to consumers, uh, news feeds, social media feeds, search engine results. And it's not only that there are many different ways in which content can become corrupted, it's the staggering volume of content that moves through these platforms. In the long, long ago of 2018, Facebook was reportedly processing 300 million photos per day and scanning roughly 105 terabytes of data every 30 minutes. So this presents a little conundrum. When content is flowing so quickly and so heavily, it can be difficult to vet everything before it gets to a consumer. And it sounds a little like it has traditionally been easier for these companies to ask for forgiveness rather than permission. This leaves the problem to be inherent on the platforms, as we find uh, in our research, because what it means is that the content is already delivered to a consumer before it's reviewed. More needs to be done at, at the upstream stage before that content is actually delivered to consumers. Something could be 
um, monitoring of users. So that's picking up things like bots and trolls, um, more effective mechanisms to do that. One thing we, we particularly highlighted was, was impact assessments of, of changes in products. So how content is distributed on platforms is by algorithm. So an example would be when Facebook added to their platform an I voted button. This had a material impact on the turnout in the particular election that they were monitoring. So these very small product changes can have actual real world impacts and these need to be better understood and monitored um, by these companies. And it's precisely because of the impact of virtual content on the real world that companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, and also Snap and Tencent are in the spotlight. In the US alone, growing social unrest and a polarized election has raised the stakes for companies that can't get on top of these content moderation challenges. Memories of the 2016 Cambridge Analytica scandal are still pretty fresh, even in the warped space-time of COVID-19. But for all the progress companies have made in strengthening their content integrity, including through natural language processing and human content moderation, there may be a way to go. From an ESG point of view, we consider this to be a substantial risk. Um, from the company's side, we don't see that they have recognized the risk to the same degree. And how we can see that is by understanding who manages this risk from uh, a company point of view. Is that manager, for example, sitting on the executive committee or in the corporate office, or is it down at the, at the product level? And we can see that most companies in the industry do not elevate the risk beyond the product level uh, manager into the corporate structure. For example, uh, appointing a specific team and executive to oversee the risk or at the executive committee level. And as content platforms brace for a US election imbued with ongoing social protests and the consequences of a pandemic, that COVID-19 pandemic continues to ripple across the global pond. See, parts of the world are already shifting away from the immediate disaster responses to COVID-19, like hard lockdowns and hoarding toilet paper. But a vaccine or acquired immunity are not a sure bet just yet. Which, to plagiarize Dave Matthews, leaves us in the space between. A slightly awkward middle ground in which we may start to see just how permanent the consequences of the pandemic could be. For Minako Takaba in Tokyo, COVID-19 has introduced a new variable into a long-running examination of gender diversity in Japan's workforces. Up until now, the typical career trajectory of male and female employees has been heavily influenced by childcare, something that Minako witnessed firsthand. Long time ago, my manager, who she was in America, she told me she usually left the office earlier than others and spent her time with their kids and uh, went back to work at night at the home. But looking at my friend uh, working at a Japanese company, female workers uh, who had the young kids, like uh, going to kindergarten, they cut their working hours, means cutting their responsibility in job and also uh, their career path. But efforts to better integrate women in Japan's workforce particularly leadership positions, may have received an unexpected boost from COVID-19. You see, before the pandemic, as Minako points out, female employees that were having children often faced a dilemma when weighing up the role of parent versus worker. Research from 2010 to 2014 found that just under half of Japanese women quit their jobs when their first child was born. And a lot of that has to do with traditional working culture in Japanese offices. 
flexible working style or working hour was not common in Japan before pandemic. The traditional Japanese company require employees to appear in office and then spend their time in a, you know, specific working hours given by company. But COVID-19's tenacity has forced Japanese companies to adopt remote working practices, sometimes for the first time, or for some companies to escalate early moves towards flexible work practices. Minako found that companies in the healthcare and IT sectors were better prepared for this transition, having already adopted remote working systems before the pandemic kicked in. And being able to work from home not only gives women more flexibility in their careers, but also lets men tag in for more domestic duties, including changing dirty diapers. Government research from June 2020 found that in response to the pandemic, 45% of people in Tokyo had shifted the balance of household and childcare roles between men and women. But for all the benefits it offers to employees, Japanese companies, and indeed companies in other markets too, may have to adapt quickly if a new remote working culture becomes more widely adopted. Because being able to motivate and reward employees that report into the office every morning is a very different prospect than doing the same thing in a decentralized workforce. In terms of the hours of working, I found the statistics in general, they shortened their working hours by this work from home system during the pandemic because of basically the Japanese people have a long hour commuting. Uh, so uh, they can cut that part from working hour. The challenge for Japanese company is, you know, employees are not appearing in the office. So the performance evaluation and also reward system need to shift if they really want to utilize the benefit of the work from home system or remote work. Shifting the salary system based on the seniority to our uh, performance-based one is, is a challenge and that that's something they need to tackle going forward. And as companies in Japan wrangle with a looming sea change in working culture, we turn to our last story about a different kind of change at sea. Because although some industries and some companies may have been pleasantly surprised by how quickly they and their workers adapted to the challenge of a pandemic, for others it was probably as bad as expected, with a few surprises thrown in for good measure. And just about topping the list of unfortunates is the cruise line industry, a business model almost designed to spread an infectious disease as ships of thousands of people sail slowly from port to port, where crew and passengers disembark, shop, eat, drink, reboard, repeat. And cruise liners got caught off guard in the early days of the pandemic. Maybe the most iconic of these was Carnival Corporation's Diamond Princess, which was docked in Yokohama port for 27 days as authorities agonized over how best to respond. With a limited understanding of COVID-19 and shortcomings in equipment and protocols, 712 infections were ultimately reported for the 3,711 people on board, with a total of 14 fatalities. And that sounds shocking to you and me, but hearing how cruise ships like the Diamond Princess battled to respond to the novel challenges of the coronavirus was not necessarily as surprising for a sharp analyst like SK Kim, who has been keeping a keen eye on ESG risks for the cruise line industry. Before COVID, you know, the safety concerns have always been there. We have been capturing that controversy um, arising from failure to fully manage product safety risk. The major issue, you know, related to product safety was firstly food poisoning, right? It, it, it has been frequently picked up. And also secondly, uh, the health and safety of the passengers and the employees, you know, there's been fatalities and safety events um, that happens on, on deck. And bad track records of safety incidents 
were probably not that big a deal when the upsides for cruises are postcard perfect pictures and bottomless seafood buffets. But when you add in a little COVID with horror stories of passengers on stranded ships feeling like they were in a quote petri dish, that's when a company's track record starts to matter a whole lot more. I think it's a good example of how this, you know, reputational risk can actually, you know, turn into more of a financial difficulty because um, this COVID-19, it, it directly relates to um, old people who go on to cruise line, like after they retire. And COVID just um, gives uh, lesser options to those people because this is really like life or death decision for them. It could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be. If they're not very convinced with um, you know, the health and safety policies that the cruise lines um, have in place, then it is just basically cruise lines are losing customers. So it's not surprising to see widespread cancellations of cruise itineraries, some well into 2021, like for the iconic Queen Mary II and Queen Victoria. Or to see companies like Carnival issuing new bonds at fairly enticing interest rates. But somehow, things may get even more complicated. Because in the background are a set of increasingly stringent Toxic Emission Regulations, or the MARPOL Convention, which is ratcheting up pressure on companies to retrofit their engines or bring in completely new ships to drastically reduce their fleet's pollution. And whatever strategy a company chooses, or whichever direction they decide to go, it's probably not going to be cheap. There are still regulatory uncertainties. Um, There's a chance that those measures that cruise lines have taken may not be sufficient. Unless, you know, they, the cruise lines switch to, you know, low sulfur fuels, which is already more expensive. That's one of the uncertainties in addition to what they have already been losing um, because of the COVID. The pressure that the cruise lines are facing, it's um, huge. And the huge pressure on cruise liners could be something that hangs around for a couple of years or more in this awkward space between the initial pandemic panic and a settled future where COVID-19 becomes, touch wood, a manageable risk. And cruise liners with a robust safety record and proactive risk management may get back on their feet quicker than others. The same goes for Japanese companies that were able to adopt more flexible working environments. Not only does that keep them running during a pandemic, but it offers a stronger talent pool if female employees no longer have to choose between parenting and a career. COVID-19 has effectively thrown down the gauntlet to companies and entire business models, and everyone's got to kind of find their own way through it. But for interactive and media services companies, the shape of the risk is a little different. For companies like Facebook and Google and Tencent, how effectively they manage content integrity risks and the level at which the company tackles the issue is something that is going to shape society. Not necessarily a risk for the company, but a significant externality. Whether it's through transmitting accurate, versus misleading information about COVID-19, or warding off sinister attempts to sway elections and provoke unrest. Nobody said any of this would be easy, least of all for investors that are faced with complex investment trade-offs. But ultimately, whatever the challenges, ESG offers a new way of looking at them, of assessing the risk and weighing up the responses of companies to an ever-changing world. And that is it for another week. A most sincere thanks to Andrew, to Minako, and to SK for letting me get between them and their work. Thank you very much for tuning in. Let us know if there's any topic you'd be interested in hearing more on, or if you enjoyed something you've heard before. We really love hearing from you. 
Do hit subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Rate and review the show if you've got a moment. But most of all, don't forget to breathe when you can as we all try and navigate the space between. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.